Our scripture readings today come from Proverbs and from Mark. Proverbs 30, verses 1 through 6. The words of Agur, son of Jela, the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? The word of the Lord. Today, uh, I want to look at five elements of these passages. First, I want to look at the situation of the calling of Jesus Christ, the command that he had to go across to the other side. I want to look at the sudden storms of life. Um, Stephen, if you can bring me down a little, I'm a little too hot. Um, uh, I want to look at what the disciples do in doubting his care, how they not only doubt his command, but also his care. I want to look at God's power being on display. Jesus gives a, a simple command, and immediately something comes into alignment with that command. And then finally, I want to look at this meal that we are about to take as a meal of peace, a meal of unity and harmony that we've been invited into by God himself. The meal which we will be receiving at the end of the service is the culmination of our worship because it is the visible expression of God's uh, sanctifying work that he did on the cross for us, that he brought us to himself through Jesus. And so uh, that is the meal which declares uh, his peace to us. Uh, we looked last week at, at the passages from Paul in which 
it said that God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself. And so this idea is that God is calling us uh, to behave just as the winds and the waves. He's calling us to allow our lives to be settled by him in such a way as we would be those visual demonstrations, those living testimonies to the gospel and its effectiveness. And so let's get into to the text this morning. Um, Christ rebukes the disciples. Make no doubt about it. Christ gives a rebuke to the disciples in this passage. And I want to have you engage your mind for a second. Think with me. Why did Christ rebuke them for the way that they responded? Why did Christ rebuke them for their fear in the light of the storms which were coming? And we're going to look at this word in a little bit, but this word that describes the storm, it's a heavy word. There's, there's a real danger here. It's not as if Christ is asking the disciples to ignore the problem that pre- is presented, he's, but rather he's expecting them to react to the problem in a different way. So the, this idea of following Jesus, we don't ignore pain. We don't say, oh, well, if you just had more faith, it would be fine. We're, we're not ignoring the issues of sin, the, the circumstances that come about. But at the same time, we must respond to them in the way that Christ wants. We can't just respond in any old way. We can't respond in, the, in our natural responses. We have to respond to circumstances according to the word of God and God's will that's plainly revealed to us. And so we have to understand Christ's thinking concerning this journey. He says it's time to go over to the other side, right? Why did he say that? I maintain that Christ, when he says that he does nothing of his own accord, he says the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord, I believe that that means nothing. That literally every moment of Jesus' life was done listening to the Father's will by the power of the Holy Spirit. And especially in his ministry, if not all of his life, he was watching for the Father's action and he uh, moved in step as a great divine dance of this mission in, in what he was doing in Israel. It was time to leave. He had been preaching for a long time. It was time to go to the other side. And so Jesus decides it's time to go to the other side because he sees the Father is directing him to to cross the sea. And at this direction, he knows he's operating within God's will. And so the time on that side's over, and they've got to pass. So Mark 4, 35 through 36, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across. So this, this idea is that he is... Uh, following God. He's following the Father by the Holy Spirit. He's understanding that the Father's directing him to the next part of the mission. He's moving on. But also, he himself gives a command. He says, let us go across over to the other side. And so, Jesus Christ is giving a command in agreement with the will of the Father, and that command was not taken away. That command is given and remains. Verse 36, and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. So this idea is that there were a lot of boats that were coming out because um, they didn't have this really nice sound system that we have, and they didn't have headset mics. They had to uh, occasionally go to places that were natural amphitheaters, right? The side of a hill. Uh, You would shout, and your sound would carry better. You would go to the sea, and then you would shout over to the shore because the 
the geography of the, of the land helps your sound carry. And so Jesus is being pressed in on all sides. The context here is that he, there were so many people who wanted to get to him that he actually had to move on to water uh, to get away from him. And so here he's in this boat. They've been, he's been preaching uh, from the boat to the, the people on the land, and they just decide, okay, it's now time to get across to the other side, and then they leave. And uh, as if it's not clear that the crowds are following him. Everybody who was on the shore who could have gotten into a boat went with them. There's a, other fishermen, probably guys who you know, are farers. They take people across, and uh, everybody's going along with them. There's this great multitude of boats along with the disciples. Um, and so let that be in the context of what you see in this passage. It's not just the disciples and Jesus in this boat. There's a whole caravan of these people who are continuing to want to follow Jesus. And Jesus at this point is spent. He's tired. He's wanting to go across the other side and find some refuge. You see that exact same theme show up in the next chapter in Mark. And so Jesus is going to this, he's going on a mission to the other side, and that command that he gives to his disciples remains. It's not taken away. Christ is sent on a mission by God. This is what he's doing to proclaim liberty to the captives. Do you remember what happens when Jesus announces his public ministry? He takes the scroll and reads from Isaiah the prophecy that Isaiah gave concerning the Messiah, that the Messiah would come and he would be anointed with the Spirit of the Lord. And this, is, this might jog your memory. The Spirit of the Lord is on me to do what? Proclaim liberty to the captives freedom to the oppressed, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And this is Christ's mission. He's on a mission to do this. And that mission also includes a visible demonstration to the nation of Israel of the heart of God. That is, he wants to cleanse Israel. The way that Jesus tells the Israelites that God wants to cleanse them is he cleanses lepers and rejoins them to community. Whereas in the Old Testament, if a leper continued in their leprosy, they were cast out from among the people, lest the leprosy would spread and multiply and infect others. Same thing happens with those who commit adultery. They are cast out of the community and executed. Those who are rebellious sons, they're sent away from and they're executed. This idea is that sin is spreading and sin is infecting and it's, and it's multiplying. And God has put up with this for a long enough period of time so that the Israelites would know that without God doing something about the sin, it will affect all of Israel. And so Jesus Christ is coming and he's proclaiming freedom. In this very same book, uh, I think in a, just the chapter before, in chapter three, Jesus not only heals a man with a withered hand, which is leprosy, but he also heals a demonic uh, uh, boy, a boy who's infested with or, or filled with uh, these these demons. And so the idea is that these demons are sent into swine, right? Why is that? Because for Israel, swine were considered dirty. And what's just happening is something's coming out of a person, out of this boy, and is sent into pigs. It's a, it's a visible testimony to all of Israel that Israel has become defiled. This is the spiritual state of her. And so this is what Christ is doing. He's on a mission to show the heart of the Father. The Father wants his people back. He wants them to be cleansed. He wants them to be healed. He wants them to be near him. And so Christ has a mission, and before he completes that mission, nothing will happen to him that is outside the will of God. This is the confidence that Christ has in going to the other side of the river or of the of the sea of galilee 
excuse me. This is this will not be interrupted. Christ knows confidently that the Father who keeps his promises will cause it to come to pass that Christ will fulfill his mission. He will not be interrupted by anything. And so Christ knows that he's going to make it to the other side of the, of the sea. He's not concerned in the least. That's why he's able to sleep through the storm. Christ, knowing the commissioning that he had from the Father, is confident of his provision and guidance unto completion. He will give a faithful testimony of the heart of Yahweh, including that Yahweh will take on himself the punishment for Israel's sins by death. And so Jesus Christ will complete his mission. He knows and is confident in God's provision in that area. And this translates to how we relate to the storms in life, which we're going to look at in a second. The storms of life come suddenly, and this word in this passage is actually, it's, it's a word which carries meaning from Greek mythology. There was this infinitely fast fox, which was outrunning, this is Greek mythology, infinitely fast fox, which was outrunning all the gods who were hunting him. And so one of the other gods gave as a present an infinitely fast dog. But the problem was that this infinitely fast dog would always outrun the fox. And so it was, as the dog would run past, it would cause a whirlwind. That's, that's the term, the, the very word for this, it's called laplos, and it's, it's a term which basically means a whirlwind that's unstoppable, a whirlwind that's the byproduct of, of divine action. It's, it's a, a byproduct or a wind that comes from this chaos among the gods. Now, of course, we know that the Greeks were, uh, you know, demon worshipers, that we know that an idol is nothing. We know that there is no God except for Yahweh. And so we're not, I'm not advocating that you understand that there was some infinitely fast dog here. I'm just trying to give you the context for the term. The context for the term is this is a chaotic wind that's been caused by turmoil among the divine or among the gods. And so I don't, I don't necessarily believe that that is, uh, at all what's happening here. There's a wind, which I believe maybe is sent from God or, or perhaps just from natural causes. It depends on where you land on things like the sovereignty of God and how it applies to everything. That's not in view here. That's not my point. My point is here that this wind was a sudden wind, and it's not just like a storm. If you've seen anything going on in our city the last few days, you know it's been raining quite a bit. If you go downtown, I've never seen the river higher. Why? Because there's been violent storms. But those storms that have been coming against Dayton in the last few days have not been hurricanes. If you've never been in a hurricane or a tornado, you may have thought that those storms were pretty bad. But the word here is a word that conveys a hurricane, a violent amount of water and rain beating about along with wind and waves that are turbulent. This is a terrible storm. It's a storm worse probably than any of us have been in. And that's the context. It don't When you read Great Storm, don't think, oh, it was raining and they were getting wet and they didn't have their umbrellas. This was a storm that was perilous. And so Jesus Christ is not rebuking the disciples for reacting to a fake storm in the wrong way, but rather a real storm in the wrong way. That actually turns up the volume on his rebuke because it, it emphasizes the severity of of the natural response in the midst of an event. If you respond naturally according to the ways that you should, that you think according to the flesh, you will miss God's purpose in a moment. If you respond according to the spirit, rightly interpreting God's will, God's command for that moment, and if you operate and, and respond accordingly, then you won't miss him in the moment.
So the Sea of Galilee is this big giant sea. If you looked at the Lake Erie, Lake Erie is a larger lake than the Sea of Galilee. And so my friend Adrian taught me this wonderful metaphor, which the people on the audio won't understand. This is a small cow, right? This right here, this is a small cow, and that's a large ant, (laughs) right? Do you get the idea? So this sea is not really a sea. It's very small, but it's not only small in terms of overall area, it's also very shallow, and what happens with shallow seas is they're more af- more easily affected by and disturbed by winds. Um, think, of, think it out, water displacement. Fluid dynamics, you can go learn all about that. But the idea here is that the Sea of Galilee is naturally disposed to storms. It's just perfect for it. And also complicating the matter is there's these great heights, these great hills that surround all of the Sea of Galilee. This is what happens in the Miami Valley. We have these giant uh, hills and there's this wonderful valley and any wind that comes by the the north or the south of the valley kind of gets sucked into. And so the, the weather here is worse than, the weather predictions here are worse than almost anywhere I've seen because things rapidly change because of the geography. It's just the land is predisposed to storms coming in at a moment's notice. And this is exactly what happens. You can be going out on the sea, everything can look fine, and then one thing changes and instantly a storm shows up that you can't do anything about. The storms of life happen in such a way. They happen in a way where we cannot precede them. We can't, we can't see them coming and say, well, that's about to be a tragedy two days from now. Let me get my affairs in order to deal with this, right? Have you ever had something happen in life where you knew it was coming and, and then were able to get prepared totally? No, this is not how the storms of life happen. A great windstorm arose. That's, that's not, again, it's not a small storm. It's a great windstorm. It's a hurricane. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. If you've ever been on a boat, you know that that's a problem. Jesus is not rebuking the disciples for responding to a fake problem. He's rebuking them for a wrong response to a real problem. And so waves breaking over the sides of the boat are a problem. It's not often the case that you have perhaps encountered this, but think about it very closely. If you're scooping out water out of a boat, and there's just as much water in the boat as in the sea, you're not doing any difference. You're not changing the the dynamic of what's going on there. At some point, once you lose buoyancy, you can't gain it back. Because every time you scoop, you're pushing your boat down a little bit. And the water's coming in, and the water's coming in, and there's nothing to do once it's overtaken. And this is a very real danger. The disciples had a legitimate response in terms of understanding this was a real problem. A boat of any size, which is filling with water, can be quickly overcome. While I was uh, doing my preparation for this last night, I just looked up, and I I haven't really thought about this, but I just imagined, well, if they made the Titanic back in the 1900s, surely now, with our great understanding of engineering and material design, surely we've made boats that are bigger. And the boats that I've seen just on Google Images that are compared next to the Titanic, it's like the cow and ant problem, right? I mean, these boats are huge. They, they can fit the Eiffel Tower in the boat. Uh, these boats that are showing up are amazing, but it doesn't matter how large the boat. If the boat is filled with water, it's no longer a boat. And this is ec- excellently captured. I heard this Chinese proverb a few months ago, and I thought it would be great. Water can both float a boat 
Water can float a boat and it can sink it also. It's so true. Water can float a boat, but it can sink it also. And so this idea is that this boat is in a perilous place. There is a storm, which is a legitimate storm, and it's about to go down. And so the disciples respond to this. And this is the storm of life. You do not go about your day and and just have everything go right. If you compare life to a boxer, none of life's punches are telegraphed. Do you know what I mean by that? They say in boxing that among the excellent boxers, you can, as the boxers are watching each other, they can see when a punch is coming if they're doing the punch wrong. And so you don't, you don't demonstrate to your opponent where the punch is going to land first. You just respond, you know, you maybe move and try to fake them out. You see this in basketball with dribbling. Life's punches that it throws at you are not telegraphed. You often do not have any pre, uh, uh, pre-advanced warning. You don't have any notice beforehand that Today, a tragedy will strike. Today, a friend will turn their back on you. Today, some relationship will explode and be irreparably damaged. You're you're often not aware that the storms of life are coming. And when you are aware, you're not even able to do anything about it. If you're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and you see a storm coming, it's already too late. You just have to get, get battened down the hatches and stay in the boat. And so this is a metaphor for how we respond to to tragedy, how we respond to heartbreak, how we respond to sorrow. It's not enough for you to know that Jesus Christ is sufficient to atone for your sins and not also have him be the Lord over your emotions. It must be the case that you go day by day walking by the light of Christ and not simply by an idea that, well, I'm going to be saved at the end of my life and Christ has nothing to say with the time in between. It's important that you respond to the storms of life according to the will of God and the clear command that he's expressed. Having truly heard God's call, though we are in peril, we ought never lose all hope so as to despair. Losing all hope so as to despair means that you have no remembrance of God's original call. You can call to mind nothing of the promises of God which are for you and for your children and your children's children, all who are far off according to Acts 2. To, dif- to lose all hope so as to despair is to give up, to give in, to give place to habitual sin that you never war against any longer, to allow bitterness to invade your heart so as to never forgive your brother. That's what it means to allow all of your hope to be depleted so as to despair. It's not enough that you persist a little while. In Ephesians, it says, having done all to stand, stand firm. It means that at the, at the end of your rope, you take hold of the grace of God and find that there's more rope there. That's what it means to not despair in the midst of the storms of life. And so I want to look at this twofold error that the disciples make in their response. It's a twofold error because there are two aspects to the error. The first aspect, verse 38, but he was in the stern, that is Christ was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. There's basically an idea that there's this part of the boat, if you've never heard of a stern, it's just a place where they keep storage stuff. They keep, you know, a chest or some tools or things that they're carrying across that's in the stern. And so Jesus is resting on a cushion in the stern and this boat begins to fill with water. Now, I don't know about you. I'm a pretty light sleeper. If any water was touching my feet, I'd instantly be awake. But Jesus here is resting. He's very tired, and he's also very at peace. And so they woke him up and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? This twofold error is, is first that they, would, that they believed that they would perish. 
Again, we cannot understand Jesus' rebuke, understanding that this word means hurricane, understanding that water can float a boat and sink it also, understanding that, that there was a legitimate problem. We cannot understand Christ's rebuke unless we come to understand that he knew that God's command for them to cross over to the other side meant they would not perish no matter what it looked like. More importantly, the second aspect of their fault here, more importantly is they accused the Christ of not caring. John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus coming upon the Jordan, he says to his disciples, he announces to those around, around him, he says, behold, pointing over to Christ, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the Messiah, the one to save his people from his sins, and they accuse this one of not caring. If you ask a question, it indicates that you don't know the answer, right? You don't ask a question that you know the answer to, at least not a real question. This isn't a rhetorical question. They're intending to ask him a question to invoke a response so that he would do something about the storm, right? Master, do you not care that we are perishing? That indicates that they have begun to doubt whether or not they know if he cares. That is the error here. They have begun to doubt whether Christ is concerned with their state, both that they will perish, and if they perished, would he even care at all? The fear which was caused by the storm has caused them to doubt God's care. It's okay to be afraid of the storm. It's okay to be, worry, to be afraid of an, an emotional problem or a relationship that's falling apart. It's okay to see a fire and run out of the house right? That's not the problem here. The problem is to allow that fear to creep into a place where it doesn't have any authority. That's why Jesus Christ rebukes the winds and the waves, because they had overexceeded their authority. There's a way of appealing to God's intervention that upholds his covenant faithfulness and doesn't doubt it. That's what the disciples did. They said, Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? Let's look at what David did. And when he had sinned, you may remember that David was a righteous king, and yet in the midst of his righteousness, he decided not to go out to war that year when his, ch his charge was to extend the borders of Israel to the fullness of the promised land that God had given to Abraham. He decided not to go out to war. That's always when you know you're in trouble, when you're not taking ground as, as someone who's been invested with authority, as someone who's been told by Christ to go into all the world. If you're not going out, you're in a dangerous spot. You're opening, your up to, you're opening yourself up to temptation that you should have never even encountered because you would have been on the battlefield. Had David been on the battlefield field that day, he would not have been on his roof looking into this woman's uh, house to see her and to desire her. He commits this sin of murder by sending her husband to the front lines of battle, a place where he should have been. And then from there, he covers it up and also does not open, does not confess his sin, but waits until a prophet of God is sent to rebuke him, Nathan the prophet. And at this point, when, Na when David is reeling from his moral failure, when David is beginning to understand the consequences and, and the whirlwind which is coming into his life because of these sins, he begins to cry out to the Lord for intervention. But he does it in a way that's distinctly different from the disciples. In Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God according to your steadfast love, 
According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He appeals to God and he says, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion and mercy, not apart from, not as an exception from, but rather according to your great covenant faithfulness, according to your great promises, which you've given to the king of your people, according to those, wash me, intervene. Petitioning God to remember his covenant and act act accordingly is fundamentally different from what happens here. The disciples doubt Christ's care, they doubt his love, and so accuse him of being callous to their perishing. So God intends to display his power. He intends through this storm to show the disciples that he has authority over wind and waves. And Christ could have done that even if the disciples had not perished or had not feared. Jesus Christ commands to the winds, not with fear, but with authority. He responds to the disciples' fear and doesn't allow that fear to topple him, right? Like the chambers of a boat, the Titanic, right? The boat was designed so that if all the chambers were upheld or the majority of them were upheld, they would, that boat would never sink. But the problem was that they hit an iceberg that just pierced a little bit of each chamber. And so all the chambers, one after another, are falling down like dominoes. This is what happens in life. You respond to someone who comes at you with anger, with fear, with jealousy, and you often partner with it instead of responding to it rightly and not partnering with that fear which intimidates. And so Jesus responds to this fear of his disciples and also remember the great multitude of boats around with them, which were all in the same peril. And he responds accordingly to the will of God, that is to demonstrate his authority as the one who gathers the winds in his fists and causes the waves to be still, according to what we read in Proverbs today. Mark 4, 39, 40, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. Look at the exclamation points on those words. Jesus is not kind of kind of trying to influence the waves. Like if he spends a lot of time with them, maybe they'll see his inner peace and want to emulate it. I'm exaggerating for the point of clarity that Jesus is not kind of telling, well, waves, you're... You're not really getting it. Wind, you're only supposed to go where I want you to go, but I'll tolerate you for a while. No, there are exclamation points on both of these words. Peace, be still. He commands it. He doesn't suggest it. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? The two questions which Christ asked the disciples are hard to reckon with. The reason they're hard to reckon with is what we've been mentioning. This is a legitimate peril. On the one hand, we know that Christ deals with the actual threats. If, if Jesus didn't know the actual threat that was posed by the winds and the waves, he wouldn't have done anything about it. If they weren't real legitimate threats to sinking the boat, he would not have intervened. He ends the situation, he ends the confrontation by demonstrating his authority as God in the flesh, but also he then turns from that storm to a storm that's entered the disciples' hearts. See, it was, it was okay to permit the storm around the boat for a time, but it wasn't, allow, it wasn't allowable. It wasn't permissible for the disciples to allow that storm to affect the way that they understood who Christ was as the Savior of the world, as the one who has compassion on all men. 
On the other hand, Christ's questions say that it was wrong for the disciples to respond in fear. How are we to understand this second part? How, how is it that you still have no faith, right? He says to the disciples after being with them for many uh, months, at least at this point, possibly a year or two at this point in their walk, how do you still have no faith? I don't believe at all that Jesus is judging the disciples because of the faithlessness, that is, that they were unable to stop the storm. That does happen occasionally in the Gospels. At one point, they're given authority and they're given a commissioning to go into Israel and to heal the sick, to cleanse lepers, and to cast out demons. That, that shows up in Luke 11. And um, the other Gospels have mentions of it here and there. And at one point, they come back and are unable to, to deal with a boy who's being de- uh, demonically oppressed. And Jesus does rebuke them for their lack of faith in, in that they were unable to bring this boy into healing. But I don't think that that is the, the cause here. I don't think that is why Jesus is rebuking them. He's rebuking them not because of their inability to stop the storm themselves, but because of their inability to remain faith, to remain convinced that God's call on them, their mission to cross to the other side, would be completed. I believe that Christ knew by the Spirit beforehand, before they left, that God was intending to display his divinity through his confrontation of the wind and the waves. That is what we read in Proverbs 30 was going to come to pass so that the disciples would clearly see this is the one that Proverbs 30 was talking about, the one who gathers the winds in his fist and says to the sea, be still. That great call in Daniel where it says the one who is walking on the wind and the waves. This is what I believe Christ knew by the spirit that God had intended for that that encounter. And yet the disciples should not have responded in fear. Understanding faith rightly, Christ expects them, he expects the disciples to have placed their trust in God's command to go across to the other side and and their, their father's call and watching instead of the natural threat of the storms. Again, they're a valid threat, but it's not, a, it's not permissible to allow a valid threat to touch an area, area which it has no authority to. Ultimately, Christ is calling them to put into practice his command to fear God and nothing else. We're going to look at a passage here, but remember Matthew 10, he says, are not two birds sold for a penny? Right? The idea is that if these birds, which are multitudinous out in nature, if they're sold for a penny and yet God sees their falling, how much more is he concerned with you? someone who bears his image and likeness, someone who he's calling to be made not only in his image, but also after the image of their Redeemer. Matthew 6, 26 through 27. This is another metaphor that he uses. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember the Sermon on the Mount? One of my favorite things to do is to look at God's creation, which The Psalms tell us, Romans 1 tells us that the creation itself is declaring the invisible attributes of God, that through the created order, the things of God are plainly seen. I love the ability that God has invested in us to see in his creation little glimmers, little glimpses of his glory. And this is what Jesus Christ commands in this passage. He says to look at, a better word I think is to consider. He says, look at the birds of the air right? So next time you go out, I want you, next time you see a bird, I want you to remember this moment. He says, they neither sow 
nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. There's absolutely no planning that birds do. They don't set up gardens. They don't harvest from garden. Well, they harvest from my garden, but they don't, they don't invest any time, and yet the Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Again, rhetorical question. Jesus knows the answer. Do you know the answer? Because oftentimes you betray that you don't know the answer. Verse 27, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Think about being in the boat, right? We talked about once the boat is sufficiently filled with water, any more scooping of the boat is just, it's not helping anymore. What can you do on the Sea of Galilee when a thunderstorm, when a hurricane comes in? Nothing. There's nothing you can do. You can hold on to the boat, tie some things down, make sure you don't lose some pieces, you know, make sure the oars are safely stowed and, and the sails are wrapped up. But there's nothing to do in the midst of the storm except for wait. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? You can't even control your own heart rate without changing breathing or doing some exercise. You can't mentally cause anything to happen in your own body, let alone something outside of you. And so why do you give in to anxiety? It's because you're unaware that God has called you, and he's called you for a specific mission, and that mission will come to pass. Christ, the the good shepherd of the sheep, the true and faithful high priest, cares for his lambs such that his eye is ever upon him. Christ is even now sitting at the right hand of the Father, praying on your behalf that God would complete his plan for your life. He is a priest which constantly lives, ever lives, to make intercession for you. And so this shows the depth of the, the question that the disciples gave. Master, do you even care that we're perishing? Of course he does. He says that those that the Father gives him, he loses none of them. How many is none? Zero. Of those that the Father place in the hand of Christ, no one can pluck them out. What does he say concerning the churches in Revelation? He holds the stars, the churches, in his hand. And so this is the confidence that we have in Jesus Christ. Not only is his authority over the winds and the waves, but also he has authority over the affairs of the heart. It is not enough for you to see Jesus move in external circumstances and to not allow him to speak peace into your life. Just as on that day that he spoke peace, he doesn't suggest it, but he commands it in your life. He commands peace. And if the winds and the waves obey him, how much more should we? The night before his death, in showing his disciples the sign, Christ instituted a meal which we are about to now remember. And that meal was a meal in which Christ visibly showed the peace that he was bringing by going to the cross. Not only did he give that sign, but he gave explicit teaching that very same night as recorded in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. How does the world give? The world gives according to a returning of a favor. You do something nice, I get you back. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. Christ is not giving them peace because they've earned it. He's not giving them peace because they're ready to steward it. He's giving them peace because they need it, because he's gracious and and loving. It's not a gift which is given as a return of a favor or expecting something back in the future. He gives peace and he gives it without merit. He gives it without according to what someone has done. Let not your hearts be troubled. That's a command. 
that's as important as thou shalt not serve other gods and worship them. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's where we'll end today. Father, we thank you for this command of Christ to, in the storms of life, turn to you. Lord, we ask that you would not only tell us to have peace, but that you would command it to be, that you would cause it to be. Lord, we admit often we are unable because of our lack of knowledge of your call and lack of trust in your goodness. We are often unable to calm the storms ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would invest in us a trust, that you would put into us a faith that sees your calling on our lives individually and as a people corporately, and that nothing which happens would cause us to have fear so as to doubt or to lose all hope so as to despair. God, I pray that you would give us a radical clarity of the mission that you've called us on for our family, for our friends, for this city, that we would be unmoved when the storms come. In Jesus' mighty name.